We finish the discussion of the shorter discourse in Gosinga. And this time we will be taking sut, uh, the 32nd Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is entitled the Maha Gosinga Sutta. This is the greater or longer discourse in Gosinga. And this Sutta takes place at a time when the Buddha was living in the Gosinga Sala tree wood. I think it must be the same forest where the previous Sutta took place. And he was staying together with a number of very eminent great disciples. The Venerable Sariputta, Mahamogalana, Mahakasapa, Anuruddha, uh, Revata, and Ananda, as well as other very well-known disciples. And then at the beginning of the Sutta, the Venerable Mahamogalana one evening emerged from meditation, generally when the monks were dwelling in this forest, they would spend their first their mornings, in the early morning they would go on alms round, collect their food, take their meal, then clean up after the meal, then they would take a little rest, then after the rest then they would spend the whole day just sitting in meditation, then doing walking meditation, sitting and walking. Those who were very accomplished might enter into some samapati, some deep attainment, and just sit immersed in that attainment through the whole day. But generally in the evenings, just maybe a little before sunset, they would all emerge from meditation and then maybe just relax a little bit and stretch their limbs or walk around. And so one evening the Venerable Mahamogalana arose from meditation and he went to the place where the Venerable Mahakasapa was staying. And he said, let us go to see Venerable Sariputta to have a discussion on the Dhamma. Every once in a while the monks would get together in the evening time and have a Dhamma discussion. Sometimes a short discussion, sometimes if a topic of great interest was being discussed, their discussion might go on all night long. <laughs> and so the Mahakasapa agreed to the suggestion of Mahamogalana and together with the Venerable Anuruddha they started to walk towards the place where Venerable Sariputta was staying. Then Venerable Ananda saw them walking through the forest and he went to Venerable Revata and suggested that Together they joined this discussion. And so all of them, all, I think five of them, went to meet Venerable Sariputta. And it seems, though the sutta begins by saying that when it was evening, but by the time they are all settled together and ready for this discussion, it seems that darkness has fully set because the opening statement of Venerable Sariputta refers to the night being moonlit. Perhaps they were staying in kudis and caves which were spread out at some distance through the forest. So by the time they could all meet together after walking from their own dwelling places Perhaps an hour, hour and a half, or two hours have gone by. And so now evening has changed into night. And Venerable Sariputta opens up the discussion 
by introducing, just by calling the attention of all of the monks to the beauty of that particular night. I don't know what time of year this would be, but we can imagine that it will be a pleasant season when it's not too cold, not too hot, and the rainy season must be over since the sky is very clear and it's a bright moonlit night. Maybe the moon is close to the, to the full moon and so there's bright moonlight flooding through the forest. And so Venerable Sariputta addresses this gathering calling his attention to the Venerable Ananda and he says, Friend Ananda, the Gosinga solitary wood is delightful. The night is moonlit. The solitaries are all in blossom. And heavenly scents seem to be floating in the air. Okay, so he calls attention to the beauty of this night and the serene peacefulness of this forest abode where they're staying. Then he introduces the topic for their Dhamma discussion by asking Venerable Ananda what kind of bhikkhu, what kind of monk could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood. The word that's used, that's translated illuminate is the word in Pali, sobati, which can mean to beautify, to make splendid, to illuminate. And so the point of Sariputta's question is to indicate that the beauty of this forest and the splendor of this night would be even more highly beautified by a particular monk who will be dwelling in that forest. And so now Ananda replies, and as we will see as the sutta goes on, the same question will be directed to one after another of the great elders who are in the circle and each one by providing his answer will speak according to his own conception of the ideal monk. Now Venerable Ananda was the Buddha's personal attendant as I'm sure all of you know and Ananda served and looked after the Buddha during the last 25 years of the Buddha's life. During his earlier years, when he began teaching at the age of 35, up to the age of perhaps 55, for 20 years, the Buddha did not have one constant regular personal attendant. but different monks would take turns attending to the Buddha. By the time the Buddha reached the age of 55 or so, this wasn't working out very well. Sometimes the Buddha would expect his attendant to come regularly to sweep out the kuti where he's staying, and the attendant would be distracted and get involved in other things and the kuti would be unswept. Sometimes the, if the Buddha was not feeling well, the monk would forget to prepare medicine for him. Sometimes if the Buddha wanted to go in one direction, the attendant monk would want to go in a different direction. And so this was becoming troublesome for the Buddha as his age was advancing. And so he decided that it would be better for him to appoint one of the, his close disciples to be his constant personal attendant. And so he 
presented this proposal to the Mahasangha and first Venerable Sariputta offered his services as the attendant, but the Buddha remained silent. Then Mahamogalana offered to become the attendant. Again the Buddha was silent. Then one after another of great Arahant disciples proposed to become the Buddha's personal attendant, but the Buddha didn't agree. Then finally, Venerable Ananda said that he would be willing to serve as the personal attendant of the Buddha if the Buddha would agree to eight conditions. First, there were four conditions of refusal. That is, Venerable Ananda did not want to receive any special robes that might be offered to the Buddha. If people brought fancy robes, well-prepared robes, and offered to the Buddha, and the Buddha had already had a robe, Ananda did not want the Buddha to pass on that robe to him, because he didn't want to be thought that he was getting special favors from the Buddha in exchange for his services. The second condition, he didn't want, <laughs> if the Buddha was offered any special alms food, he didn't want to receive that alms food, but he would provide for his own needs, either by getting from his own supporters or by going pindapata. And the third was that he didn't want to have a special luxurious cottage built for him. was that if the Buddha was invited for a special dana on the outside, that he didn't want the Buddha to bring him along as his attendant monk, but that also would be a form of special favor. Okay, so those are four conditions of refusal. Then there were four other special conditions that Ananda wanted. My memory is just getting not as good as it used to be. <laughs> this is about anyway, I remember two of <laughs> the two that are important. That if Venerable Ananda had missed any sermons of the Buddha on any occasion, he wanted the Buddha to repeat those sermons to him so that he will know them. Gee, the other three now I just can't remember. Okay, I'm sorry, but I, I shouldn't have tried to, to explain these without having rehearsed them previously. Anyway, the important thing is that he requested the Buddha to repeat to him any sermons that were delivered in his absence so that he would have them accumulated in his memory. And because of this, Ananda became what is known as the Dhamma Bandhigarika, which means the treasurer of the Dhamma. He was one who excelled in memory, the power of memory. And so whenever he heard suttas spoken by the Buddha, his mind was like a tape recorder, which would just retain every word that the Buddha spoke without letting it slip through his memory. And he was one who excelled in the ability to recite all the Dhamma that he had learned. And so if any other monks wanted to know what suttas the Buddha had spoken, he would come to Venerable Ananda and ask for a replay of that sutta and Ananda would just write on the spot 
just tap into his memory bank and come right out with it. And for this reason, because of his outstanding memory and his ability to recite any discourses by the, that were given by the Buddha flawlessly, when the first great council was held, Venerable Ananda was required or requested to be the specialist in the Sutta Bhitaka, the one who was called up for questioning and the monks would question Ananda, what sutta did the Buddha speak on such and such an occasion? And then Ananda would come right out and recite that entire sutta. And in this way, the canon was um, compiled through the clarity and perfection of the memory of Venerable Ananda. And so when Venerable Ananda is asked what kind of monk is capable of illuminating this Gosinga sol solitary forest? He replies that it's the kind of monk who represents the ideal which he himself exemplifies. He says, friend Sariputta, it is a bhikkhu who has learned much and the word, the expression which is translated here, who has learned much, is Bahu Sutta, which means literally one who has heard much, listened to much. Because in the days of the Buddha, people did not write religious scriptures in books. Even the Vedas, the Brahmanic scriptures, were transmitted for centuries just by oral transmission. And similarly, the Buddha followed that same pattern, that same practice of teaching his discourses and expecting the monks to, by listening to them, to learn them by memory. And this would require, for this to take place, it would require the presence of monks who have outstanding retentive capacities who are able to listen and remember exactly what they've heard. And so Ananda says that the ideal bhikkhu is one who has learned much, listened, that is, heard much, listened to much, who remembers what he has learned, that is, having heard it, then he retains it in mind, he bears it in mind and he consolidates what he has learned. Or I would say, render that he familiarizes himself with what he has learned. That is, after listening to the teachings and bearing them in mind, then he consolidates these teachings by repeating them to himself over and over, reciting them until he can retain them flawlessly. Because memory is a tricky thing, and even though one might have a very good retentive capacity, that is on first hearing one remembers what one has heard, if one doesn't practice and familiarize oneself with what one is bearing in mind, one doesn't repeat it so that those words form, you say, grooves in the mind, then it's possible that the teachings will be lost. And so one has to consolidate what one has learned by familiarizing oneself. Then the Venerable Ananda continues by describing the teachings with a certain formula which the Buddha commonly uses himself in the suttas. He says, such teachings as are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, 
and which affirm or disclose a holy life that is utterly perfect and pure. Such teachings as these he has learned much of, remembered, mastered verbally, investigated with the mind, and penetrated well by view. There's a lot of meaning in this very concise description of the Dhamma. First, the teachings or Dhamma, the teachings are said to be good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. It's Adi Kalyano, Majima Kalyano, Pariyosana Kalyano. They're good in the beginning, because even the very elementary teachings of the Buddha are perfectly sound and wholesome if one puts them into practice. Even sometimes when the Buddha meets simple people who are not yet ready for the highest for the higher practices, he'll just teach them just to practice generosity, dana, to observe the five precepts those teachings, very, very perfect and pure in themselves, to support their parents, to take care of their wives or husbands, to look after their children, and to provide for the religious people, the recluses and Brahmins, by supplying them with their needs. Okay, these very elementary, basic teachings even at the most fundamental level of themselves completely pure and wholesome. Then, in the middle, we come to the more advanced teachings. This would be, say, the practice of the higher virtue, maybe the eight precepts of the Uposita, the ten precepts of novices, the Patimoka Sila of Bhikkhus and the various practices of concentration or samadhi and the development of vipassana or insight. Those are the teachings of the middle level and those teachings also are completely pure and perfect. There's just nothing taught by the Buddha which is which has any flaw or defect in it. And then the Dhamma at the end, that's the culmination of the practice, will be the Lokutra Magga, the noble path, the fruits of that path, the four stages of stream entry, once-returner, non-returner, arhatship, and Nibbana. That culmination of the Dhamma also is completely perfect and pure. So for this reason the Buddha says that the Dhamma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And the teaching has the right meaning and phrasing. The word that's translated meaning signifies the, say, the practices and doctrines that are pointed to by the Dhamma. And so those practices and doctrines are good. The doctrines are good because they're completely viable. They stand up under investigation. And the practices are good because they lead to beneficial results. And the teaching is right in the phrasing because the teaching, even the verbal teaching of the Buddha, points exactly to the meaning intended. There's no ambiguity, no fudging around through equivocation, no, you say, fuzziness in formulation, but everything is very clear very consistent, 
very concise. And then those teachings, this is just a way of saying the same thing, they affirm a holy life, say a way of practice that is utterly perfect and pure. We'd say that it's perfect because there's nothing that has to be added to it to make it more complete. The Pali word actually, paripunam, means maybe complete is better than perfect. In Singhalit you have a word purna, which would mean complete. Yeah. There is such a word. So it's the same, the same word here. That it's complete because it covers everything which is essential for reaching the final goal, which is the end of dukkha, nibbana. And it's pure because there's nothing in the true teaching of the Buddha that has to be removed in order to make it more purified. (laughs) There's sort of nothing that has to be plastered over and whitewashed to make some, say, some imperfect aspect seem more acceptable. There is a passage which comes, it's in a sutta in the Diga Nikaya, Pasadika Sutta. This is close to the time of the Buddha's passing away. He was addressing the monks and he said, there seems to have been a, a phrase which was common at the time of the Buddha, seeing one does not see. And the Buddha quoted that phrase and he spoke about somebody else who used that phrase. It was another spiritual teacher who used that phrase to refer to the way of sharpening the knife that's to be used to shave the head for the monks when they shave their head. They sharpen this, what we call a barber's knife. They make it very, very sharp. And he used this phrase to indicate that the knife has been made so precisely sharp that if one takes it and holds it up horizontally, the tip of the blade, the edge of the blade is so fine that one looks at it but does not see it. It's just so, say, razor sharp. But the Buddha said that that's a foolish way (laughs) to use this expression. And he said, in the spiritual sense, if one were to use this phrase, seeing one does not see, one would use it to apply to one who looks at this teaching, this Dhamma, which I make known, and does not see that here is a teaching which is completely perfect and pure, which is utterly complete and pure. It's so complete, the Buddha says, that there is nothing to be added to make it more complete. And it's so purified that nothing has to be removed in order to make it more pure. And of course we have to understand that this applies not to what we call in quotation marks Buddhism as a cultural, religious phenomenon, socially established religious phenomenon, which has, I would say, many (laughs) impurities to it, which are almost inevitable in a historically evolving phenomenon. But this applies to the Buddha Dhamma, to the actual teaching and the practice. Okay, so this teaching, which is good in the beginning, in the middle and the end, this teaching, which is utterly perfect and pure, such teachings as these, he has learned much of, remembered, mastered verbally, 
invested with the mind, investigated with the mind, and penetrated well by view. Now these terms that Venerable Ananda uses here indicate three stages in the development of Panya, of wisdom. What Ananda is speaking of here is not merely becoming like a human tape recorder. I used the exact the simile of a tape recorder before to indicate that the perfection of Venerable but the learning of the teaching, the mastery of it, is part of the process of developing wisdom. And in the Buddhist texts, the Buddha sometimes speaks about three stages in the development of wisdom. These three stages, first I'll write the Pali terms. So within this apparently simple chain of terms or expressions that Venerable Ananda uses here, we can find embedded a reference to these three stages in the development of wisdom. The first stage is called Sutta Maya Panya. This is the stage of wisdom or understanding which is produced by or born of learning. That is, in order to evolve, for, in order for wisdom to arise and develop, first one has to hear the teaching, learn the teaching. And so this stage is implied by the words that he has learned much of, remembered, and mastered verbally the teachings. And since in those days there were no books, in order to be able to acquire this wisdom born of learning, one first would have to approach a teacher, ask him what does the Blessed One teach? And then the teacher will provide the student some, maybe a synopsis of the fundamental teachings, or if the student is more eager to learn, then the teacher will recite entire discourses to him. Then having learned the teaching, heard it, then one has to memorize it, bear it in mind, so that one can remember it. And then one masters the teaching verbally by reciting it over and over. Like in the old traditional monasteries where they would learn the teachings, even today in Burma, There are places where the monks study and then in the evening they just walk back and forth on the chankamanas reciting whatever teachings they've learned during the day over and over. So there's a constant mumble and mumble and bumble of the sound of monks reciting. And then they have to recite it very, very quickly. Okay, so then after one masters the teaching verbally, that's not enough, not sufficient to gain real insight or profound understanding. Rather, one has to go on to the next step, which is to reflect on the teaching with the mind, to examine it, to investigate what does this teaching mean, This is something especially important, I would say, in a traditional Buddhist country where people just listen to the teaching with an attitude of reverential devotion and just say, hey, Swami, hey, Swami. (laughs) (laughs) 
But that's not what the Buddha wants. He doesn't want people to say, hey, Swami, hey, Swami. But he says, investigate the teaching. Examine it in relation to your own experience. And he uses the simile, though this is not in the Pali text, but in the Sanskrit text. He says that just as when there's a money changer and people come to him with a metal, some bars of metal, and say, this is gold, give me money in exchange for the gold. The money changer just doesn't say, eh hey, Swami. <laughs> and take the bar of metal and give the amount that should be received for that weight of gold. But rather the money changer takes a piece of that metal and he puts it in the fire, burns it, hammers it, gives it the chemical test in order to decide whether this is genuine gold. And only if it is genuine gold only then will the money changer give the amount of money that is due in return for the gold. In the same way, the Buddha says, when I teach the Dhamma, don't just accept it blindly out of trust and faith, but examine it, investigate it, and scrutinize it with your minds until you gain personal conviction. So when you hear the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, one doesn't just think, ah, the Buddha said this, it must be so, anicca, dukkha, anatta. The Four Noble Truths, don't just think, ah, chaturariya satyaya. But investigate, is it really true? Can I see this in my own experience? If there are questions, how, do what's, how does one make sense out of this? This seems to be inconsistent with that. Maybe there's a problem here. How do we relate this to maybe what scientists say today? Or how do we relate this to <coughs> some aspect of my daily life. And so one should raise questions, investigate, until one gains conviction and one resolves one's doubts and perplexities. And so that is the second stage in the development of wisdom, which is to reflect or examine the teaching. What's called here investigation with the mind. And then through that investigation, one gains conviction in the teaching. One sees that this teaching is really like solid gold. But still, just having that conviction is not enough to really penetrate the truth of the teaching, to actually make the teaching one's own to comprehend it, to incorporate it into one's being, one's mind. One has to see for oneself the real truth of the teaching. And that has to be done through developing insight into the teaching, which comes through bhavana, through meditation. And so that is referred to as the bhavana maya panya, the wisdom which arises through meditation. And so, after one is convinced of the teaching, then one takes up a meditation subject, a kamatana. Say if one is doing anapanasati, observing the rise and fall of the abdomen. Then one goes on developing first some degree of samadhi or concentration 
then on the basis of that concentration one develops insight until one sees anicca, dukkha, anatta till one sees dependent arising until one sees the four noble truths and in that way one penetrates the teaching well by view okay so in this statement of Venerable Ananda we have this implicit reference to these three stages in the development of wisdom. Then Ananda continues and says that he, this ideal bhikkhu, teaches the Dhamma to the four assemblies with well-rounded and coherent statements and phrases for the eradication of the underlying tendencies. The four assemblies are the assemblies of the monks, nuns, lay men and lay women disciples. And this monk teaches the Dhamma, the teachings that he has learned, in well-phrased statements, in quite coherently and coherently organized discourse, so that everything follows in a quite methodical structure. Just like the Buddha himself teaches, nothing is given just in a very casual manner or in a very disorganized or slovenly manner, but when the Buddha or the great disciples teach, they begin by first presenting the general subject, then they'll analyze each of the particular aspects of the subject, then that then they will elaborate on each of the particular aspects of the subject, then they will show their interconnections, then tie them all together in a summary. So the teaching is just perfectly organized. And the purpose of this teaching, the purpose for teaching the Dhamma to others, is not so that the preacher will be receive the esteem and admiration of others so others will say oh what a wonderful preacher and maybe offer presents and spread his good reputation around so that he gets invited to give <laughs> more and more sermons so that he gets wealth very luxurious offerings but the purpose of the teaching is also indicated right here he teaches others, the four assemblies, for the eradication of the underlying tendencies. What's called the underlying tendencies, it's a Pali word, anusaya. The word anusaya, it comes from a root, saya, which means to sleep, or to lie, to lie down, and anu means along with. So the anusayas are certain mental states which lie within our minds. You could say that they're always dormant in our minds, lying along with the mental continuum the flow of consciousness. So they might not be active, they might not be manifest, but deep within the minds of all unenlightened beings, there are these seven factors called anusayas, which are at the root, the bottom, of all of our bondage to samsara and at the root of all suffering. These seven anusayas are, first I'll, enu I'll enumerate them, first it's 
Kama Raga Anusaya. That is the latent tendency to sensual desire. Desire for sensual enjoyment. Then there is are the basic underlying they're the deeply buried sediment of defilement in the mind and the Buddha has drawn special attention to this class of underlying tendencies and given them this name Anusaya to indicate that even though these particular factors are not actively operating in our minds. We should not become complacent and satisfied and think that we are free of them. Because until one reaches the, the super-mundane path, the Lokutara Magga, beginning with the stage of stream entry, these Anusayas are present at the very rock bottom of the mind. And it's because these tendencies are present that when we encounter the particular types of stimulus that awaken them, we become vulnerable to them. We become overcome by them. For example, somebody might seem very calm, very self-composed as he's walking down the street and there's no problem at all in his mind. But if maybe he's crossing the street and then a car comes zooming around the corner and almost runs over, his, over him, then because of the patika anusaya, he becomes angry. <laughs> if he's walking down the street, then he sees a beautiful girl on the other side of the street, then kamarag anusaya will arise, the underlying tendency of sensual desire. If he might seem very humble, very, very subdued, very meek and gentle, but maybe if somebody praises him for something, then he starts to become swollen and haughty and proud. That's because the mananusaya is present and that becomes activated. And then what underlies all of our minds is avijja, the underlying tendency of ignorance, of not knowing. And it's very interesting in one sutta in the Madhyama Nikaya called the Greater Discourse to Malankya Putta, the Buddha points out the case. He asks one of the monks, what are the fetters? And one of the monks answers in a way which doesn't satisfy the Buddha. And then the Buddha points out that even in a little newborn baby who is lying on his back, seemingly completely innocent, he says, in that little baby, even the thought of sense pleasures doesn't arise. And yet, in that little baby, the Kamaraganusaya is present. There is that underlying tendency to sensual desire. In that little baby, he doesn't have any notion of say, of self, of what I am. 
And yet, in that baby, the Sakaya Ditti Anusaya is lying dormant. The latent tendency to some view of self. In that little baby, he's never heard any Dhamma teachings, and yet there is the Vichikicha Anusaya, the latent tendency to doubt about the teaching, and so on. So the Buddha points out that even in the case of what seems to be the most innocent, pure being, this little newborn baby, these latent tendencies are present. Then as the baby gets older and comes into contact with various stimuli and his experience matures, <coughs> then these latent tendencies will start to become activated and will become manifest. And so in order to gain complete liberation, it's necessary to eradicate these underlying tendencies. And the eradication of the underlying tendencies comes about through the development of panya, of wisdom. And the first stage in developing wisdom is to hear the teaching. And the purpose, according to Venerable Ananda, the purpose in this ideal monk, his purpose in presenting the teaching and expounding the teaching is out of compassion for those who listen to the teaching so that he can help them to eradicate the underlying tendencies. Then Ananda sums up his point by saying that this is the kind of monk who could illuminate or beautify, or maybe who will be an ornament in this Gosinga solitary wood. Okay, maybe we will stop here at this point. And if there are any questions on what has been explained just now, then... I'd, I'd like to ask if, if there's any implication that the different kinds of wisdom are in a step basis, that you must have the wisdom of learning mm-hmm. or the wisdom of investigation will not work. You must have the investigation or you will not get insight through meditation. Is there any implication of this? Or for instance, if you have learned something yeah. but not investigated it to the yeah. point where you feel you understand it, yeah. do you think it's possible to, to gain it by meditating? I think one can gain, and I think that as one goes on, say if one... Let me just reflect a little bit. I would say that after one has heard something, in order for the motivation to take up the meditation, for that motivation to be present, there would at least have to be a certain minimal amount of investigation, even to arouse that motivation to undertake meditation practice. So I would say that investigation does not have to be very complete and very wide-ranging in order to lead into meditation, and in order for the meditation to be fruitful. I would say that this really I would say that this three-stage process is intended to be as comprehensive as possible and to take, to show like the ideal sequence or structure. But I say that there are many variations possible in the case of individuals. And also I would say that some of these processes can take place very, very quickly so that one almost is not aware that they're present. Let me just give an example, which is like the the paragon of this quick achievement. This is the case of Venerable Sariputta, who before he became a disciple of the Buddha, 
was a wandering ascetic who had traveled all over India seeking a path to enlightenment without success. Then one day, while he was walking around, wandering around, he saw one of the first five disciples of the Buddha called Asaji going on alms round. And he, could, he was very impressed just by the silent manner of this monk. And so he thought, ah, from the manner of this monk, the way he walks, the way he stops at, his, at the houses, the way he receives the food, I think that this is certainly one who is an arahant, a liberated one, but someone who has definitely entered the path. So I will question him. So he waited until Asaji had collected his alms, and he had waited until Asaji had finished his alms round, that he cleaned his bowl and washed his feet for him. Then he asked him, what is the teaching that you follow? And Asaji, Venerable Asaji said, this teaching is very extensive and I'm just a newcomer, even though he was an arahant. And so I can't explain it to you in any length. So Sariputta said, in that case, just tell me the essence, just the essence I want. And then Asaji said, well then, I'll tell you. Then he recited this four-line stanza that said, whatever phenomena there are that arise from a cause, the Buddha, the Tathagata, has explained their cause and also their cessation, and, and also their cessation. That is what the great teacher proclaims. Then just while Sariputta was listening to that four-line stanza, I mean, he didn't have to learn much, remember what he had learned, master it verbally and investigate it. But just by the time Asaji had finished the first two lines, Sariputta was a stream enterer. I would not say that in any case that the Dhamma is not good for some people. What I would say is that the the statement that the Dhamma is good in the beginning, good in the end, good in the middle, good in the end, that refers to the nature of the Dhamma if it is taken up and practiced correctly. <laughs> what is dangerous is grasping the Dhamma wrongly and applying it wrongly. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong inherent. There's anything inherently wrong with the Dhamma itself. It's just that if people take up even what is excellent and use it wrongly, then it can be dangerous. Like, well, of course, the Buddha gives a simile of the snake, or we can take, let's say, a medicine like you know, even the common aspirin. Okay, the aspirin is a very simple medicine which anybody can take it if they take in the appropriate measure. If they have flu, headache, muscular pains, it will give them relief. If they come up and say, this is good, and just keep on popping the aspirins till they've gone through a whole bottle, then it's going to have a disastrous effect. <laughs> Okay, any other, any further questions? Why are the monks singing their own religion in this song? <laughs> 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 well, they're not singing their own praises. They're not referring to themselves and saying that I am the ideal monk, but they're just describing the kind of monk that they think would be the, the, the one who will beautify the forest on that night.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.